Slouching Towards Bethlehem by John Didion Part 1. Lifestyles in the Golden Land Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream This is a story about love and death in the Golden Land and begins with the country. The San Bernardino Valley lies only an hour east of Los Angeles by the San Bernardino Freeway, but is, in certain ways, an alien place. Not the coastal California of the subtropical twilights and the southwesterlies of the Pacific, but a harsher California, haunted by the Mojave just beyond the mountains, devastated by the hot, dry Santana wind that comes down through the passes at 100 miles an hour and winds through the eucalyptus windbreaks and works on the nerves. October is the bad month for the wind, the month when breathing is difficult and the hills blaze up spontaneously. There has been no rain since April. Every voice seems to scream. It is the season of suicide and divorce and prickly dread, wherever the wind blows. The Mormons settled this ominous country and then they abandoned it. But by the time they left, the first orange tree had been planted and for the next hundred years, the San Bernardino Valley would draw a kind of people who imagined they might live among the talismanic fruit and prosper in the dry air. People who brought with them Western ways of building and cooking and praying and who tried to graft those ways upon the land. The graft took in curious ways. This is the California where it is possible to live and die without ever eating an artichoke, without ever meeting a Catholic or a Jew. This is the California where it is easy to dilate devotion but hard to buy a book. This is the country in which a belief in the literal interpretation of Genesis has slipped imperceptibly into a belief in the literal interpretation of double indemnity. The country of the teased her and the capri and the girls for whom all life's promise comes down to a waltz-length white wedding dress and the birth of a Kimberly or a Sherry or a Debbie and a Tijuana divorce and a return to her dresser school. We were just crazy kids, they say without regret, and look to the future. The future always looks good in the Golden Land because no one remembers the past. Here is where the hot wind blows and the old ways do not seem relevant, where the divorce rate is double the national average and where one person in every 38 lives in a trailer. Here is the last stop for all those who come from somewhere else, for all those who drifted away from the cold and the past and the old ways. Here is where they are trying to find a new lifestyle, trying to find it in the only places they know to look, the movies and the newspapers. The case of Lucille Marie Maxwell Miller is a tabloid monument to that new lifestyle. Imagine Banyan Street first, because Banyan is where it happened. The way to Banyan is to drive west from San Bernardino, out Foothill Boulevard, Route 66, past the Santa Fe Switching Yards, the Forty Wings Motel, past the motel that is 19 Staco TPs, sleep in a wigwam, get more for your wampum, past Fontana Drug City and the Fontana Church of the Nazarene and the Bit Stop Ago Go, past Kaiser Steel through Cucamonga, out to the Kapukai restaurant, bar and coffee shop at the corner of Route 66 and Cornelian Avenue. Up Cornelian Avenue from the Kapukai, which means forbidden seas, the subdivision flags whipping the harsh wind. Half acre ranches, snack bars, travertine entries, $95 down. It is the trail of an intention gone haywire, the flotsam of a new California. But after a while, the signs thin out on Cornelian Avenue, and the houses are no longer the bride parcels of the springtime homeowners, but the faded bungalows of the people who grow a few grapes and keep a few chickens out here. And then the hill gets steeper, and the road climbs, and even the bungalows are few, and here, desolate, roughly surfaced, 
lined with eucalyptus and lemon groves, is Banyan Street. Like so much of this country, Banyan suggests something curious and unnatural. The lemon groves are sunken by a three or four foot retaining wall, so that one looks directly into their dense foliage, too lush, unsettlingly glossy, the greenery of nightmare. The falling eucalyptus bark is too dusty, a place for snakes to breathe. The stones look not like natural stones, but like the rubble of some unmentioned upheaval. There are smudge pots and a closed cistern. To one side of Beniander is the flat valley, and to the other is the San Bernardino Mountains, a dark mass looming too high, too fast, 9, 10, 11,000 feet, right there above the lemon groves. At midnight on Banyan Street there is no light at all and no sound except the wind and the eucalyptus and a muffled barking of dogs. There may be a kennel somewhere, or the dogs may be coyotes. Banyan Street was the route Lucille Miller took home from the 24-hour Mayfair market on the night of October 7, 1964, a night when the moon was dark and the wind was blowing and she was out of milk. And Banyan Street was where, at about 12.30 a.m., her 1964 Volkswagen came to a sudden stop, caught fire, and began to burn. For an hour and 15 minutes, LaSalle Miller ran up and down Banyan calling for help, but no cars passed and no help came. At three o'clock that morning, when the fire had been put out and the California Highway Patrol officers were completing the report, LaSalle Miller was still sobbing and incoherent, for her husband had been asleep in the Volkswagen. What will I tell the children when there's nothing left, nothing left in the casket? She cried to the friend called to comfort her. How can I tell them there's nothing left? In fact, there was something left, and a week later it lay in the Draper Mortuary Chapel in a closed bronze coffin blanketed with pink carnations. Some 200 mourners heard Elder Robert E. Denton of the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Ontario speak of the temper of fury that has broken out among us. For Gordon Miller, he said, there would be no more death, no more heartaches, no more misunderstandings. Elder Ansel Bristol mentioned the peculiar grief of the hour. Elder Fred Jensen asked, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? A light rain fell, a blessing in a dry season, and a female vocalist sang Safe in the Arms of Jesus. A tape recording of the service was made for the widow, who was being held without bail in the San Bernardino County Jail on a charge of first-degree murder. Of course, she came from somewhere else, came off the prairie in search of something she had seen in a movie or heard on the radio, for this is a Southern California story. She was born on January 17, 1930, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, the only child of Gordon and Lily Maxwell, both school teachers and both dedicated to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, whose members observe the Sabbath on Saturday, believe in an apocalyptic second coming, have a strong missionary tendency and, if they are strict, do not smoke, drink, eat meat, use makeup or wear jewelry, including wedding rings. By the time Lucille Maxwell enrolled at Walla Walla College in College Place, Washington, the Adventist school where her parents had taught, she was an 18-year-old possessed of unremarkable good looks and remarkable high spirits. Lucille wanted to see the world, her father would say in retrospect, and I guess she found out. 
The high spirits did not seem to lend themselves to an extended course of study at Walla Walla College, and in the spring of 1949, Lucille Maxwell met and married Gordon Cork Miller, a 24-year-old graduate of Walla Walla and the University of Oregon Dental School, then stationed at Fort Lewis as a medical officer. Maybe you could say it was love at first sight, Mr. Maxwell recalls. Before they were ever formally introduced, he sent Lucille a dozen and a half roses with a card that said even if she didn't come out on a date with him, he hoped she'd find the roses pretty anyway. The Maxwells remembered their daughter as a radiant bride. Unhappy marriages so resemble one another that we do not need to know too much about the course of this one. There may or may not have been trouble on Guam, where Cork and Lucille Miller lived while he finished his army duty. There may or may not have been problems in the small Oregon town where he first set up private practice. There appears to have been some disappointment about their move to California. Court Miller had told friends that he wanted to become a doctor, that he was unhappy as a dentist and planned to enter the Seventh-day Adventist College of Medical Evangelists at Loma Linda, a few miles south of San Bernardino. Instead, he bought a dental practice in the western of San Bernardino County, and the family settled there, in a modest house in the kind of street where there are always tricycles and revolving credit and dreams about bigger houses, better streets. That was 1957. By the summer of 1964, they had achieved the bigger house on a better street and the familiar accoutrements of a family on its way up. The $30,000 a year, the three children for the Christmas card, picture window, the family room, the newspaper photographs that showed Mrs. Gordon Miller, Ontario Hart Fund Chairman. They were paying the familiar price for it, and they had reached the familiar season of divorce. It might have been anyone's bad summer, anyone's siege of heat and nerves and migraine and money worries. This one began particularly early and particularly badly. On April 24, an old friend, Elaine Hayton, died suddenly. Lucille Miller had seen her only the night before. During the month of May, Cork Miller was hospitalized briefly with a bleeding ulcer, and his usual reserve deepened into depression. He told his accountant that he was sick of looking at open mouths, and threatened suicide. By July 8th, the conventional tensions of love and money had reached a conventional impasse in the new house on the acre lot at 8488 Bella Vista, and Lucille Miller filed for divorce. Within a month, however, the Millers seemed reconciled. They saw a marriage counsellor. They talked about a fourth child. It seemed that marriage had reached the traditional truce, the point at which so many resigned themselves to cutting both their losses and their hopes. But the Millers' season of trouble was not to end that easily. October 7th began as a commonplace enough day one of those days that sets the teeth on edge with its tedium, its small frustrations. The temperature reached 102 degrees in San Bernardino that afternoon, and the Miller children were home from school because of Teachers Institute. There was ironing to be dropped off, there was a trip to pick up a prescription for Nembutal, a trip to a self-service dry cleaner. In the early evening, an unpleasant accident with Volkswagen. Cork Miller hit and killed a German shepherd, and afterwards said that his head felt like he had a Mack truck on it. It was something he often said. As of that evening, Cork Miller was $63,479 in debt, including the $29,637 mortgage on the new house, a debt load which seemed oppressive to him. 
He was a man who wore his responsibilities uneasily and complained of migraine headaches almost constantly. He ate alone that night from a TV tray in the living room. Later, the Millers watched John Forsyth and Santa Berger in See How They Run, and when the movie ended, about 11, Cork Miller suggested that they go out for milk. He wanted some hot chocolate. He took a blanket and pillow from the couch and climbed into the passenger seat of the Volkswagen. Lucille Miller remembers reaching over to lock his door as she backed down the driveway. By the time she left the Mayfair market, and long before they reached Banyan Street, Cork Miller appeared to be asleep. There is some confusion in Lucille Miller's mind about what happened between 12.30 a.m. when the fire broke out and 1.50 a.m. when it was reported. She says that she was driving east on Banyan Street at about 35 miles per hour when she felt the Volkswagen pull sharply to the right. The next thing she knew, the car was on the embankment, quite near the edge of the retaining wall, and flames were shooting up behind her. She does not remember jumping out. She does remember prying up a stone with which she broke the window next to her husband and then scrambling down the retaining wall to try to find a stick. I don't know how I was going to push him out, she says. I just thought if I had a stick, I'd push him out. She could not, and after a while she ran to the intersection of Banyan and Cornelian Avenue. There are no houses at that corner and almost no traffic. After one car had passed without stopping, Lucille Miller ran back down Banyan toward the burning Volkswagen. She did not stop, but she slowed down, and in the flames she could see her husband. He was, she said, just black. At the first house up Sapphire Avenue, half a mile from the Volkswagen, Lucille Miller finally found help. There, Mrs. Robert Swenson called the sheriff, and then, at Lucille Miller's request, she called Harold Lance, the Miller's lawyer and their close friend. When Harold Lance arrived, he took Lucille Miller home to his wife, Joan. Twice, Harold Lance and Lucille Miller returned to Banyan Street and talked to the highway patrol officers. A third time, Harold Lance returned alone, and when he came back, he said to Lucille Miller, OK, you don't talk anymore. When Lucille Miller was arrested the next afternoon, Sandy Slagle was with her. Sandy Slagle was the intense, relentlessly loyal medical student who used to babysit for the Millers and had been living as a member of the family since she graduated from high school in 1959. The Millers took her away from a difficult home situation and she thinks of Lucille Miller not only as more or less a mother or a sister, but as the most wonderful character she has ever known. On the night of the accident, Sandy Slagle was in her dormitory at Loma Linda University, but Lucille Miller called her early in the morning and asked her to come home. The doctor was there when Sandy Slagle arrived, giving Lucille Miller an injection of Nembotol. She was crying as she was going under, Sandy Slagle recalls. Over and over she'd say, Sandy, all the hours I spent trying to save him, and now what are they trying to do to me? At 1.30 that afternoon, Sergeant William Patterson and Detectives Charles Callahan and Joseph Carr of the Central Homicide Division arrived at 8488 Bella Vista. One of them appeared at the bedroom door, Sandy Slagle remembers, and said to Lucille, you've got 10 minutes to get dressed or we'll take you as you are. She was in her nightgown, you know, so I tried to get her dressed. Sandy Slagle tells the story now as if by rote and her eyes did not waver. So I had her panties and bra on her and I opened the door again, so I got some caprice on her, you know, and a scarf. 
her voice drops and then they just took her. The arrest took place just 12 hours after the first report that there had been an accident on Manion Street, a rapidity which would later prompt Lucille Lenore's attorney to say that the entire case was an instance of trying to justify a reckless arrest. Actually, what first caused the detectives who arrived on Manion Street toward dawn that morning to give the accident more than routine attention were certain apparent physical inconsistencies. While Lucille Miller had said that she was driving about 35 miles per hour when the car swerved to a stop, an examination of the cooling Volkswagen showed that it was in low gear and that the parking, rather than the driving lights, were on. The front wheels, moreover, did not seem to be in exactly the position that Lucille Miller's description of the accident would suggest, and the right rear wheel was dug in deep, as if it had been spun in place. It seemed curious to the detectives, too, that a sudden stop from 35 miles per hour, the same jolt which was presumed to have knocked over a gasoline can in the backseat and somehow started the fire, should have left two milk cartons upright on the back floorboard and the remains of a Polaroid camera box lying apparently undisturbed on the back seat. No one, however, could be expected to give a precise account of what did and did not happen in a moment of terror, and none of these inconsistencies seemed in themselves incontrovertible evidence of criminal intent. But they did interest the sheriff's office, as did Gordon Miller's apparent unconsciousness at the time of the accident and the length of time it had taken Lucille Miller to get help. Something, moreover, struck the investigators as wrong about Harold Lance's attitude when he came back to Bainian Street the third time and found the investigation by no means over. The way Lance was acting, the prosecution attorney said later, they thought maybe they'd hit a nerve. And so it was that on the morning of October 8th, even before the doctor had come to give Lucille Miller an injection to calm her, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office was trying to construct another version of what might have happened between 12.30 and 1.50 a.m. The hypothesis they would eventually present was based on the somewhat tortuous premise that Lucille Miller had undertaken a plan which failed. A plan to stop the car on the lonely road, spread gasoline over her presumably drugged husband, and, with a stick on the accelerator, gently walk the Volkswagen over the embankment, where it would tumble four feet down the retaining wall into the lemon grove and almost certainly explode. If this happened, Lucille Miller might then have somehow negotiated two miles up Carnelian to Bella Vista in time to be home when the accident was discovered. This plan went awry, according to the Sheriff's Office hypothesis, when the car would not go over the rise of the embankment. Lucille Miller might have panicked then, after she had killed the engine the third or fourth time, say, out there on the dark road with the gasoline already spread, and the dogs baying and the wind blowing and the unspeakable apprehension that a pair of headlights would suddenly light up Bainian Street and expose her there and set the fire herself. Although this version accounted for some of the physical evidence, the car in law because it had been started from a dead stop, the parking lights on because she could not do what needed doing without some light, a rear wheel spun in repeated attempts to get the car over the embankment, the mill cartons upright because there had been no sudden stop, it did not seem on its own any more or less credible than Lucille Miller's own story. Moreover, some of the physical evidence did seem to support her story. A nail in the front tire, a nine-pound rock found in the car, presumably the one with which she had broken the window in an attempt to save her husband. 
Within a few days, an autopsy had established that Gordon Miller was alive when he burned, which did not particularly help the state's case, and that he had enough Nembutal and Sandoptal in his blood to put the average person to sleep, which did. On the other hand, Gordon Miller habitually took both Nembutal and Furinol, a common headache prescription which contains Sandoptal, and had been ill besides. It was a spotty case, and to make it work at all, the state was going to have to find a motive. There was talk of unhappiness, talk of another man. That kind of motive, during the next few weeks, was what they set out to establish. They set out to find it in accountant's letters and double indemnity clauses and motor registers, set out to determine what might move a woman who believed in all the promises of the middle class, a woman who had been chairman of the Hart Fund and who always knew a reasonable little dressmaker and who had come out of the bleak wild of prairie fundamentalism to find what she imagined to be the good life. What should drive such a woman to sit on a street called Bella Vista and look out her new picture window into the empty California sun and calculate how to burn her husband alive in a Volkswagen? They found the wedge they wanted closer at hand than they might have at first expected, for, as testimony would reveal later at the trial, it seemed that in December of 1963, Lucille Miller had begun an affair with the husband of one of her friends, a man whose daughter called her Auntie Lucille, a man who might have seemed to have the gift for people and money and the good life that Court Miller so noticeably lacked. The man was Arthur Hayden, a well-known San Bernardino attorney, and at one time a member of the district attorney's staff. In some ways, it was the conventional clandestine affair in a place like San Bernardino, a place where little is bright or graceful, but it is routine to misplace the future and easy to start looking for it in bed. Over the seven weeks that it would take to try Lucille Miller for murder, Assistant District Attorney Don A. Turner and Defense Attorney Edward P. Foley put between them and fold a curiously predictable story. There were the falsified motel registrations. There were the lunch dates, the afternoon drives in Arthur Hayden's red Cadillac convertible. There were the interminable discussions of the wrong partners. There were the confidants. I knew everything, Sandy Slagle would insist fiercely later. I knew every time, places, everything. And there were the words remembered from bad magazine stories. Don't kiss me, it will trigger things. Lucille Miller remembered telling Arthur Hayden in the parking lot of Harold's Club in Fontana after lunch one day. And there were the notes, the sweet exchanges. Hi, sweetie pie, you are my cup of tea. Happy birthday, you don't look a day over 29. Your baby, Arthur. And toward the end, there was the acrimony. It was April 24th, 1964, when Arthur Hayden's wife, Elaine, died suddenly and nothing good happened after that. Arthur Hayden had taken his cruiser, Captain's Lady, over to Catalina that weekend. He called home at nine o'clock Friday night, but did not talk to his wife because Lucille Miller answered the telephone and said that Elaine was showering. The next morning, the Hayden's daughter found her mother in bed, dead. The newspapers reported the death as accidental, perhaps the result of an allergy to her spray. When Arthur Hayden flew home from Catalina that weekend, Lucille Miller met him at the airport, but the finish had already been written. 
It was in the breakup that the affair ceased to be in the conventional mode and began to resemble instead the novels of James and Kane, the movies of the late 1930s. All the dreams in which violence and threats and blackmail are made to seem commonplaces of middle-class life. What was most startling about the case that the state of California was preparing against Lucille Miller was something that had nothing to do with law at all, something that never appeared in the eight-column afternoon headlines but was always there between them. The revelation that the dream was teaching the dreamers how to live. Here is Lucille Miller talking to her lover sometime in the early summer of 1964, after he had indicated that, on the advice of his minister, he did not intend to see her anymore. First, I'm going to go to that dear pastor of yours and tell him a few things. When I do tell him that, you won't be in the Redland Church anymore. Look, Sonny Boy, if you think your reputation is going to be ruined, your life won't be worth two cents. Here is Arthur Hayden to Lucille Miller. I'll go to the Sheriff Frank Bland and tell him some things that I know about you until you'll wish you'd never heard of Arthur Hayden. For an affair between a Seventh-day Adventist dentist's wife and a Seventh-day Adventist personal injury lawyer, it seems a curious kind of dialogue. Boy, I could get that little boy coming and going. Lucille Miller later confided to Erwin Sprangle, a Riverside contractor who was a business partner of Arthur Hayden's and a friend to both the lovers. Friend or no, on this occasion he happened to have an induction coil attached to his telephone in order to tape Lucille Miller's call. And he hasn't got one thing on me that he can prove. I mean, I've got concrete. He has nothing concrete. In the same taped conversation with Erwin Sprangle, Lucille Miller mentioned a tape that she herself had surreptitiously made, months before, in Arthur Hayden's car. I said to him, I said, Arthur, I just feel like I'm being used. He started sucking his thumb and he said, I love you. This isn't something that happened yesterday. I'd marry you tomorrow if I could. I don't love Elaine. He'd love to hear that play back, wouldn't he? Yeah drawled Sprangle's voice on the tape. That would be just a little incriminating, wouldn't it? Just a little incriminating, Lucille Miller agreed. It really is. Later on the tape, Sprangle asked where Cork Miller was. He took the children down to the church. You didn't go? No. You're naughty. It was all, moreover, in the name of love. Everyone involved placed a magical faith in the efficacy of the very word. There was a significance that Lucille Miller saw in Arthur saying that he loved her, that he did not love Elaine. There was Arthur insisting later at the trial that he had never said it, that he may have whispered sweet nothings in her ear, as her defense hinted that he had whispered in many years, but he did not remember bestowing upon her that special seal, saying the word, declaring love. There was a summer evening when Lucille Miller and Sandy Slagle followed Arthur Hayden down to his new boat in its mooring at Newport Beach and untied the lines with Arthur aboard. Arthur and a girl with whom he later testified he was drinking hot chocolate and watching television. I did that on purpose, Lucille Miller told Arthur Sprangle later, to save myself from letting my heart do something crazy. January 11, 1965, was a brightly warm day in Southern California, the kind of day when Catalina floats in the Pacific horizon 
and the earth smells of orange blossoms, and it is a long way from the bleak and difficult east, a long way from the cold, a long way from the past. A woman in Hollywood staged an all-night sit-in on the hood of her car to prevent repossession by a finance company. A 70-year-old pensioner drove his station wagon at five miles an hour past three Gardena poker parlors and emptied three pistols and a 12-gauge shotgun through their windows, wounding 29 people. Many young women become prostitutes just to have enough money to play cards, he explained in a note. Mrs. Nick Adams said that she was not surprised to hear her husband announce his divorce plans on the Les Crane show, and farther north, a 16-year-old jumped off the Golden Great Bridge and lived. And, in the San Bernardino County Courthouse, the Miller trial opened. The crowds were so bad that the glass courtroom doors were shattered in the crash, and from then on, identification discs were issued to the first 43 spectators in line. The line began forming at 6 a.m., and college girls camped at the courthouse all night with stores of graph and crackers and no call. All they were doing was picking a jury those first few days, but the sensational nature of the case had already suggested itself. Early in December, there had been an abortive first trial, a trial at which no evidence was ever presented because on the day the jury was seated, the San Bernardino Sun-Telegram ran an inside story quoting Assistant District Attorney Don Turner, the prosecutor, as saying, we are looking into the circumstances of Mrs. Hayden's death in view of the current trial concerning the death of Dr. Miller, I do not feel I should comment on Mrs. Hayden's death. It seemed that there had been barbiturates in Elaine Hayden's blood, and there had seemed some irregularity about the way she was dressed on that morning when she was found under the covers, dead. Any doubts about the death at the time, however, had never gotten as far as the sheriff's office. I guess somebody didn't want to rock the boat, Turner said later. These were prominent people. Although all of that had not been in the Sound Telegram story, an immediate mistrial had been declared. Almost as immediately, there had been another development. Arthur Hayden had asked newspaper men to an 11 a.m. Sunday morning press conference in his office. There had been television cameras and flash bulbs popping. As you gentlemen may know, Hayden had said, striking a note of Steve Bonomie, there are very often women who become amorous toward their doctor or lawyer. This does not mean on the physician's or lawyer's part that there is any romance toward the patient or client. Would you deny that you were having an affair with Mrs. Miller? A reporter had asked. I would deny that there was any romance on my part whatsoever. It was a distinction he would maintain through all the wearing weeks to come. So they had come to see Arthwell, these crowds who now milled beneath the dusty palms outside the courthouse, and they had also come to see Lucille, who appeared as a slight, intermittently pretty woman, already pale from lack of sun, a woman who would turn 35 before the trial was over, and whose tendency toward haggardness was beginning to show, a meticulous woman who insisted, against her lawyer's advice, on coming to court with her hair pile high and lacquered. I would have been happy if she'd come in with it hanging loose, but Lucille wouldn't do that, her lawyer said. He was Edward P. Foley, a small, emotional Irish Catholic who several times wept in the courtroom. She has a great honesty, this woman, he added, but this honesty about her appearance always worked against her. 
By the time the trial opened, Lucien Miller's appearance included maternity clothes, for an official examination on December 18th had revealed that she was then three and a half months pregnant, a fact which made picking a jury even more difficult than usual, for Turner was asking the death penalty. It's unfortunate, but there it is, he would say of the pregnancy to each juror in turn, and finally twelve were seated, seven of them women, the youngest 41, an assembly of the very peers, housewives, a machinist, a truck driver, a grocery store manager, a filing clerk, above whom Lucille Miller had wanted so badly to rise. That was the scene, more than the adultery, which tended to reinforce the one for which she was being tried. It was implicit in both the defense and the prosecution that Lucille Miller was an erring woman, a woman who perhaps wanted too much. But to the prosecution, she was not merely a woman who would want a new house and want to go to parties and run up high telephone bills, $1,152 in 10 months, but a woman who would go so far as to murder her husband for his $80,000 in insurance, making it appear an accident in order to collect another $40,000 in double indemnity and straight accident policies. To Turner, she was a woman who did not want simply her freedom and a reasonable alimony. She could have had that, the defense contended, by going through with her divorce suit, but wanted everything, a woman motivated by love and greed. She was a manipulator. She was a user of people. To Edward Foley, on the other hand, she was an impulsive woman who couldn't control her foolish little heart. Where Turner skirted the pregnancy, Foley dwelt upon it, even calling the dead man's mother down from Washington to testify that her son had told her they were going to have another baby because Lucille felt that it would do much to weld our home again in the pleasant relations that we used to have. Where the prosecution saw a calculator, the defense saw a blabbermouth. And in fact, Lucille Miller did emerge as an ingenious conversationalist. Just as before her husband's death, she had confided in her friends about her love affair, so she chatted about it after his death with the arresting sergeant. Of course, Cork lived with it for years, you know, her voice was heard to tell Sergeant Patterson on a tape made the morning after her arrest. After Elaine died, he pushed the panic button one night and just asked me right out. And that, I think, was when he really, the first time he really faced it. When the sergeant asked why she had agreed to talk to him, against the specific instructions of her lawyers, Lucille Miller said early, oh, I've always been basically quite an honest person. I mean, I can put a hat in the cupboard and say it costs $10 less, but basically I've always kind of just lived my life the way I wanted to. And if you don't like it, you can take off. The prosecution hinted at men other than Arthwell, and even, over Foley's objections, managed to name one. The defense called Miller suicidal. The prosecution produced experts who said that the Volkswagen fire could not have been accidental. Foley produced witnesses who said that it could have been. Lucille's father, now a junior high school teacher in Oregon, quoted Isaiah to the reporters. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Lucille did wrong, her affair, her mother said judiciously. With her it was love. But with some, I guess it's just passion. There was Debbie, 
the Miller's 14-year-old, testifying in a steady voice about how she and her mother had gone to a supermarket to buy the gasoline can the week before the accident. There was a Miss Lego in the courtroom every day, declaring that on at least one occasion, Lucille Miller had prevented her husband not only from committing suicide, but from committing suicide in such a way that it would appear an accident and ensure the double indemnity payment. There was Vancouver, the pretty 27-year-old Norwegian governess to Arthur Hayden's children, testifying that Arthwell had instructed her not to allow Lucille Miller to see or talk to the children. Two months dragged by and the headlines never stopped. Southern California's crime reporters were headquartered in San Bernardino for the duration. Howard Hertel from the Times, Jim Bennett and Eddie Joe Bernal from the Herald Examiner. Two months in which the Miller trial was pushed off the examiner's front page only by the Academy Award nominations and Stan Laurel's death. And finally, on March 2nd, after Turner had reiterated that it was a case of love and greed and Foley had protested that his client was being tried for adultery, the case went to the jury. They brought in the verdict, guilty of murder in the first degree, at 4.50pm on March 5th. She didn't do it, Debbie Miller cried, jumping up from the spectator section. She didn't do it. Sammy Slagle collapsed in her seat and began to scream. Sammy forgot to say it, please don't, Lucille Miller said in a voice that carried across the courtroom, and Sammy Slagle was momentarily subdued. But as the jurors left the courtroom, she screamed again. You are murderers. Every last one of you is a murderer. Sheriff's deputies moved in then, each wearing a string tie that read 1965 Sheriff's Rodeo, and Lucille Miller's father, that sad-faced junior high school teacher who believed in the word of Christ and the dangers of wanting to see the world, blew her a kiss off his fingertips. The California Institution for Women at Frontera, where Lucille Miller is now, lies down where Euclid Avenue turns into Country Road not too many miles from where she once lived and shopped and organized a Hartford ball. Cattle graze across the road and rainbirds sprinkle the alfalfa. Frontera has a softball field and tennis courts and looks as if it might be a California junior college, except that the trees are not yet high enough to conceal the concert in a wire around the top of the cyclone fence. On visitor's day, there are big cars in the parking area big books and Pontiacs that belong to grandparents and sisters and fathers, not many of them belong to husbands, and some of them have bumper stickers that say, support your local police. A lot of California murderers live here, a lot of girls who somehow misunderstood the promise. Don Turner put Sandra Garner here and her husband in the guest chamber at San Quentin after the 1959 desert killings known to crime reporters as the Soda Pop murders. Carol Tregoff is here and has been ever since she was convicted of conspiring to murder Dr. Finch's wife in West Covina, which is not too far from San Bernardino. Carol Tregoff is in fact a nurse's aide in the prison hospital and might have attended Lucille Miller had her baby been born at Frontera. Lucille Miller chose instead to have it outside and paid for the guard who stood outside the delivery room in San Bernardino's hospital. Debbie Miller came to take the baby home from the hospital in a white dress with pink ribbons, and Debbie was allowed to choose a name. She named the baby Kimi Kai. 
The children live with Harold and Joan Lance now, because Lucille Miller will probably spend 10 years at Fonterra. Don Turner waived his original request for the death penalty. It was generally agreed that he had demanded it only, in Edward Foley's words, to get anybody with the slightest trace of human kindness in their veins off the jury, and settled for life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. Lucille Miller does not like it at Fonterra, and has had trouble adjusting. She's going to have to learn humility, Turner says. She's going to have to use her ability to charm, to manipulate. The new house is empty now. The house on the street with a sign that says, Private Road, Bella Vista, Dead End. The Millers never did get it landscape, and weeds grow up around the fieldstone siding. The television aerial has toppled on the roof, and a trash can is stuffed with the debris of family life. A cheap suitcase, a child's game called lie detector. There is a sign on what would have been the lawn, and the sign reads, State Sale. Edward Foley is trying to get Lucille Miller's case appealed, but there have been delays. A trial always comes down to a matter of sympathy, Foley says wearily now. I couldn't create sympathy for her. Everyone is a little wary now, wary and resigned. Everyone except Sandy Slavel, whose bitterness is still raw. She lives in an apartment near the medical school in Loma Linda and studies reports of the case in true police cases and official detective stories. I'd much rather we not talk about the hate on business too much, she tells visitors, and she keeps a tape recorder running. I'd rather talk about Lucille and what a wonderful person she is and how her rights were violated. Hardlands does not talk to visitors at all. We don't want to give away what we can sell, he explains pleasantly. An attempt was made to sell Lucille Miller's personal story to Life, but Life did not want to buy it. In the district attorney's offices, they are prosecuting other murders now and do not see why the Miller trial attracted so much attention. It wasn't a very interesting murder, as murders go, Don Turner says laconically. Elaine Hayden's death is no longer under investigation. We know everything we want to know, Turner says. Arthur Hayden's office is directly below Edward Foley's. Some people around San Bernardino say that Arthur Hayden suffered. Others say he did not suffer at all. Perhaps he did not, for time past is not believed to have any bearing upon time present or future, out in the golden land where every day the world is born anew. In any case, on October 17, 1965, Arthur Hayden married again married his children's pretty governess, Venkeberg, at a service in the Chapel of the Roses at our retirement village near Riverside. Later, the newlyweds were fed at a reception for 75 in the dining room of Rose Garden Village. The bridegroom was in black tie with a white carnation in his buttonhole. The bride wore a long white pot de soie dress and carried a shower bouquet of sweetheart roses with Stephanotis streamers. A coronet of sad pearls held her illusion veil.